You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 252 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. My guest in this episode is Roxanne Murphy and we connected a bit on Twitter over uh, the topic of loss because she lost her husband and I lost my uh, unborn daughter Uh, and... um, I wanted to do an episode about grief and dealing with grief and also how you can heal from grief. And uh, so I asked her to join us here on the podcast to talk about her experience and how she managed to find healing. So thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. So can you tell a bit about who you are? Um, my name is Roxanne Murphy and I live in Oklahoma, uh, with my daughter and my boyfriend David. Um, I'm a stay at home mom. I homeschool my daughter and that takes up a lot of my time. We have a great time together. Um, and I guess maybe why I'm here is that I lost my husband, uh, some years ago and I took MDMA to help cope with it and it really changed my life. So can you tell um, about how you you lost your husband first? Sure. Um, I never know how much to say, so I'll just say what I have in my brain. We were on our way to breakfast, and a couple needed help on the side of the road, so we pulled over. And he was um, struck by another car on the highway because there was a lot of rubbernecking because of the people on the side of the road. He and another man were killed in front of me and my daughter was in the car and I was outside of the car watching my husband go to the car that needed help. So I saw everything and I really struggled with at that moment, whether to get my daughter out of the car seat to come with me to David's side, his name is David or not. And um, I mean, the whole thing was atrocious of course, but that, that decision was very painful. I decided to bring her with me. And we went to him, and he died in our arms. How old was your daughter? She was a year and a half. I Actually, you told me this long ago, and only the other week we were driving, and my three-year-old, because if she needs to pee, she can't wait too long, and we were driving on the highway, and, and my wife said, just stop and pee. And I said, no way, I'm not stopping on the highway. You know, Then I might... I'd rather clean the car, you know, from pee. (laughs) I was thinking of your story. Well, I don't want to plant fear in anyone's head, but to be cautious, especially with babies around, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. How long did it go before you found any, like MDMA, did you find that instantly or did it take many years before you knew what to do? Well, I'd had a lot of experience with MDMA recreationally, um, and it actually helped me with a lot of my own personal problems as a young person, you know. Um, uh, it was everybody likes MDMA generally, but I, I had a special affinity for it and I always found a really spiritual experience. Um, David and I would uh, give money to Irwid and MAPS really early on because we were so excited about the therapy 
Um, the night we called our wedding night, we took MDMA together, him for the first time. Uh, and it was a real bonding experience to say the least. Um, so I'd known about it already. I was breastfeeding my daughter. Uh, so I wasn't interested in taking it. Um, even though I really wanted to. Um, but it took me, uh, I was in therapy two weeks after the accident. I started right away and I did my best with that, but it only got so far. And so a couple of years in, I decided to reach out to maps. I knew it was just for firefighters and police officers is what they kept advertising. But, um, I thought it was worth a shot and I told them my story and they told me I could come as long as I passed all, you know, the qualifications and I did. So that day I stopped breastfeeding my daughter in preparation and I was on my way. I think they might do police officers and firemen just to get the respectability in the politician or public eye. I imagine that is a good way. It's a good angle to go into it. That's the best. Yeah, totally. I totally understand why they do do it like that. They're trying to get it started, you know. Um, but I got to reiterate just how happy I was that they accepted me at that moment because it really did change everything. I cannot wait for this to be available to cops, robbers, firemen, moms, dads, everything. But does it, I mean, would it have helped as much if you just took it and went dancing? You know, it doesn't work like that. So how does it help uh, with the set and setting? The MDMA, does it have different effects depending on how you do it? Because I've, I've never tried it. That is a great question. Um, so growing up, whenever I would take it, I was um, I felt like the only one of my friends that took it so deeply, not just recreationally, which I like to say that recreation is in recreation. There's nothing wrong. You know, you can totally find yourself on a dance floor, you know, but to go deep, deep. Um, I don't think it's as uh, natural for some people to go deep with it because it can be so extra uh, distracting with all the really wonderful physical effects, especially the first few times you do it. You know, um, I think a lot of people, and I didn't know this at the time, but a lot of people I think take it and then they say the magic goes away and it doesn't work for them anymore. And I never understood it because I always had a huge experience no matter how often I did it. And um, like my boyfriend right now, his name's David also, he had tried many times a bunch of different drugs, but MDMA especially. And he never talked about going so deep and spiritual with it like I did or having any huge heartfelt changes. And I've experienced it with him a few times since then. It took a few times and finally... I had to kind of insist that, that he put the headphones on and go inside is what they call it, you know, with the, uh, the eye shades and the headphones. And it was a completely different experience for him. So I had no idea that some people didn't naturally take to it like that, like I did. And I'm starting to realize more and more that it's um, many people uh, experience it that way. And I think a lot of people just dismiss it after a time because of it. So, yeah, I highly recommend um, putting the shades on, putting the headphones on, definitely. That is the same with cannabis, whereas, uh, you know, smoking joints doesn't really get the same effect as eating a lot of it in, in silent darkness. Sure. 
Yeah. And I heard, um, I was listening to some older podcasts of yours. Um, and you mentioned that, uh, I think you did that, uh, marijuana was not your favorite drug. Is that correct? It was a mistake when I did it, but I accidentally ate some and, and I didn't like that, but I did uh, smoke, uh, smoke it for many, many years to feel normal. And, uh, then after the ayahuasca, now I can't, uh, uh, I mean, I could smoke 10 joints a day and do my tax returns, but now I can, if I smoke one joint now, uh, I get really affected. So it's, I, I do it what, like maybe once a year or something, like very rare. Wow, that's really interesting. I wonder why, of course, I wonder why that happened. Do you have any idea? Do you think it's a chemical thing or a perspective thing? Uh, I don't know it, it, the ayahuasca or if, if it was me I don't know who is saying these things but uh, I always say the ayahuasca told me that that part of my life was finished and then when I came home I you're supposed to wait a couple of weeks which I did and then I said ah never mind. I, I smoked some and I almost I was alone at the time and uh I uh, almost fainted and I was on the floor and I was thinking, oh no, I'm di- now I'm going to die all alone, you know, like that. And uh, I got really scared of it. And the, uh, you know, like when you take psychedelics, you get into this certain environment or feeling or, I don't know, it's hard to explain, this certain vibe. I got that vibe from the joint, which I'd never had before. Two years later, I was going go- going to go back to Peru and do ayahuasca again, I ended up at, I was in Denmark, they have this uh, free town where you can, it's not legal, but it's like they sell weed openly and stuff like, like that, like like a mini Amsterdam. And uh, I hadn't smoked for a very long time, so I smoked when I was there, and uh, I was watching the sunset, and I could see this being in the sunset wavy, waggling its finger at me, like, <laughs> don't do it. Uh, so I stopped smoking uh, because I didn't want to go to uh, back to Peru and then get a trashing from the ayahuasca because I hadn't done, <laughs> done what I sh- should. I think I smoked all day, every day for maybe 10 years. But for the last like yeah nine years, I've only smoked it like once or twice a year. Usually... Um, when I'm in a place where, when I end up in a place where it's legal and it's just good quality, uh, but I I can't do much, but just a touch, just and every and I actually I did that very recently, because uh, I do that kind of, of out of like oh I remember the good old days, you know, like that kind of motive, and that I was in Amsterdam very recently, and I when I smoked there I thought ah I don't think I even enjoy that anymore. I just don't, it's not my thing anymore. I am, it sounds cheesy, but I got that uh, classic opinion now where you're naturally high. (laughs) No, I get it. When you said the vibe, I know what you're talking about. It's like all it takes, of course, you know, like if you have the music that you associate with certain experiences or if you start talking about it, you can feel your heart race and the vibration around you just kind of elevates, you know, like it's never far off anymore. Um, it, uh, uh, I think the drug is so important because 
for a lot of people, it is far off and that makes me so sad. But for me, I feel like it's always at the perimeter of my mind and I could kind of access it to a certain extent, you know? Um, and, uh, you know, when you were talking, I was thinking about some people say there's like this concept of a wall. Um, like my husband had tried marijuana a few times and he said, you know, never really did anything. And then after his, um, experience with MDMA, which there was also what seemed to be a wall that it would not work for him for quite some time. And then all of a sudden he stood up and, you know, it took effect ever since then marijuana has meant the world to him. So I wonder if it isn't about just breaking through some kind of barrier to get into that space. And once that wall comes down, you know, you're free to roam around without being blocked in. Yeah, that could be. In my case also, when I was younger, I was um, always like uh, paranoid or or angry and easily irritated and uh, uh, easily stressed and all that. So when I smoked, I, I didn't have any of those issues. So, uh, but, but uh, with the ayahuasca, that kind of cured my, cured those things for me. I don't need to smoke anymore. So now when I smoke, I get too relaxed so i become like a zombie so that's that's why that's why i think it doesn't work anymore okay okay yeah that makes sense um i've um i've i smoked pot for a really long time just because all my boyfriends and friends did it my family and stuff and i've never um smoked and not gotten completely way too high you know it was just always very overwhelming i could not socially interact at all and it was just, it became a chore, you know? And so, I mean, everything does different things to different people chemical wise, but MDMA supposed to be, supposed to be stronger in a lot of ways, but it's, it's so gentle and inviting and helpful and clarifying. Um, I, th- I think it'd be a great thing for everybody to do it personally. Is it visual or is it just emotional? Well, for me personally, it's visual, but I've had, I think I'm just very visual that way. Like people tell me that I probably didn't do MDMA or something because it's not visual. I mean, everybody has different experiences. I I get visuals every time. Um, uh, it's like acid, uh, you know, is LSD is really visual like that. I would say my MDMA experiences uh, aren't that, you know, uh, creative visually, except for every once in a while, it's a fraction of what LSD does for me anyway, visually, but it's always visual and not just tracers and things, but like objects, you know, characters. And I saw this, um, I don't know if you remember the movie, I think it was Beastmaster or Clash of the Titans. Actually, there was a little golden owl that was in it. It was mechanical. And that thing, you know, was in my vision, I don't know, stuff like that. But um, I guess it depends on the person. Do you usually see extreme visuals with any drugs that you take? Only with the, like uh, the mushroom and the ayahuasca and the iboga, not, uh, never with cannabis. That's all, I've only done those for, well, smoke DMT, but uh, it's kind of in the same genre as ayahuasca. Um, I did try salvia divinorum and uh, it's uh, it wasn't that visual but i i think you can get visual trips from that 
Have you tried LSD? Oh yeah, oh yeah, uh, I did try LSD, but it wasn't that, I didn't like it that much, I don't know why. Uh, I uh, had this, I've said it many times actually on the podcast, I think it's this thing where I, I, it freaked me out a bit because I didn't feel there was anybody there. Yes, that's what, I remember you saying that now. That's the, I do, uh, I, I, I agree. It's almost like a free-for-all but not in a free-for-all kind of way, like, oh, you're here to learn a lesson. It's just that shit's crazy, and here it is, and you're right in the middle of it. That's what it feels like to me, like the most flaming roller coaster of roller coasters, which is a sight to behold, and it does lend perspective, you know, <laughs> to a certain extent, like I couldn't wait to leave, <laughs> you know, um, but there's not an ushering uh, entity or force or, you know, feeling of good walking you through it like with mushrooms i always feel like there's someone there to greet you so yeah i feel the same way about lsd personally maybe you brainwash yourself but when you drink ayahuasca or take mushrooms and that you kind of know that it's a plant and even though lsd comes from uh, ergot and that uh, still like maybe you don't have a relationship to it and you know dmt you you extract and it's kind of like it's not a chemical but you know it's not a plant but you uh, you've done it yourself so you kind of know it somehow i don't know maybe that's why uh lsd of all those psychedelics i mentioned lsd is the only one i bought from on the street you know all the other ones were provided by uh, 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 like in amsterdam they have smart shops like proper places or or a shaman or I make it myself, but the LSD I had to get, you know, in the back alley, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> right. Yeah, that will affect your experience, of course. Yeah. I, I actually did it with a friend. And when I had like a bit of a freak out, I, I accidentally said, because he didn't know where I got it from. And I, I said that I got this from the dirty streets of London, you know, like. <laughs> the dirty streets of London. I'm sure that helped. Oh my gosh, that must have really colored your experience, yeah. It felt like it was never going to end because it's so long. But I've felt that with all the psychedelics, but I don't know, there was something that didn't click with me with the LSD. But uh, that's why I've also, because of that, haven't felt that attracted to MDMA because it's also this kind of like thing you buy on the street, the chemical, you know, and at least where I am, you you couldn't buy it in a, a good place. Well, that I understand. And, you know, like uh, I have one of my relatives, I think, kind of feels that way about it. They're like, oh, well, synthetic chemicals, da, 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 da. But um, having experienced it, I know what it does for me personally. Um, Yeah, I just don't feel that way. I mean, anytime growing up before I tried uh, MDMA, shrooms was where it was at because it did feel so natural and inviting and kind. And, you know, you feel an affinity with nature. Uh, which is really nice and you don't it doesn't feel harsh like chemical lab kind of feeling like with lsd you're like for me personally i was praying for it to be over like you were saying you know this is going on a little too long um but mdma is uh it doesn't do that for me i know a lot of people say they have terrible come downs from it and stuff but i personally don't have that experience so again it's hard to recommend anything to anyone because our you know, chemical makeup is so individual, but I know that you've been through so much uh, trauma and I, I couldn't not say that it wouldn't be worth trying 
personally. It's helped me that much, you know. So what? How does it help? Does it like help you let go of the person, or what, how does how does it work? I I'm not letting go. <laughs> that's it's a. I think that's a. That's something people do when they can't get closer to their pain. I I don't mean to be arrogant when I talk like this. This is just my experience. But um, I've gotten closer with my husband <laughs> since he's been dead, if that makes sense. Um, if I didn't have MDMA, I think I would have had to let him go in order to just, you know, plod through life for the rest of my being here because it would have been unbearable. And now I can hold the unbearable feelings at the same time as like a happy feeling. Like I can watch a sitcom and know that David is still dead and will always be dead. And I saw him die. It's it's that is the biggest gift is that it the duality is gone. It's everything all the time. And that's all right. Um, it's better than all right. It's beautiful. The thing that MDMA does is. You know, all psychedelics give you perspective to a certain extent, but the MDMA, as much as I would try to go to what was bothering me, the heart of what might be bothering me, because you think, oh, it's, well, my husband's dead. That's what's bothering me. I saw it happen. Of course, that's not what it is. There's something about the way you cope that is killing you. So the way I was coping was completely invisible to me. And as much as I sought it out, it would always run and hide. And the second I got close to it, unbeknownst to me, I would turn from it because I didn't recognize it as the answer. I recognized it as the worst thing to look at. MDMA is able to take that scary, invisible thing, illuminate it, and detach you from it while you're having that experience so that you can look at it as if you're looking at it not face-to-face, You know, like I'm not sitting across the table from Satan, the devil, a monster. I'm sitting uh, watching TV of a story that happened to me. And then I can get the narrative of it and I can understand how it applies to me and why I cope the way I did. And that led to me being able to let everyone off the hook because I, I hated the world. I was I was mad. I was murderous feeling, you know. Um, suicidal, definitely. I did not want to be here. Um, the MDMA being able to afford me that perspective and that time to, you know, it's all like um, when you have a necklace that's tangled up or string or something, it takes a long time to pull every thread out and organize them and think, where did this one come from? And you follow it to somewhere deeper. Where did this one? Until the knot is no longer there. And that's what it did for me. I hope it made sense. I have no idea. I felt like I was rambling on. <laughs> it must have been harder to have that grief having a daughter because you can't, you know, you have to take care of the daughter. You you can't like have a complete breakdown and, you know, you still have to do certain things. Was that difficult? Um, it was impossible. It was complete. It, I can't believe that I was, <laughs> that I lived through it. Um, I wanted to kill both of us for for our own sakes. I couldn't believe what I was doing to her because I did have a complete breakdown and I was the only one, you know, living with her on a day-to-day basis. So she was there and we're going to have to work through that for the rest of our lives. But again, it's just like being at the scene. I looked at my daughter's name is Romy. 
I looked at Romy in the car seat and I'm like, oh my God, do I take her with me? What scene is waiting for us when I get to him? And that's how it felt afterward when I was going through it. I had to be with her. And I learned that, you know, with the, the treatment, I let myself off the hook for wailing in front of my daughter nightly for God knows how long, you know, it's, it's traumatizing and it's traumatic. She was traumatized. Her father's gone. People would say, oh, she doesn't remember. She doesn't know. I don't think that's true. I think the things that happened to us, they're in there, whether you remember them or not. You know, I could be wrong, but we're all affected, you know. So the fact that I was going through all of that, it, it was PTSD too. It was grief and PTSD. And the person that I would talk to about things to, my problems was dead. You know, David was gone and I was left with Romy and I thought for sure David was the better parent by far. And I couldn't believe that she was left with me. Ugh, pathetic. And that was another thing through MDMA. It showed me I was not pathetic. I was amazing. Uh, David chose me just like I chose David. We chose each other for a reason because we were outstanding. And we had decided to have this daughter because we loved each other so much and wanted it to grow. And we did. And that was wonderful. I also think what the child knows about why the father isn't there affects like if the father left and never came back or if it died helping somebody or if it committed suicide, it, it will co create different emotions in the child. Uh, so uh, in your case, I'm sure she won't. I mean, uh, it wasn't his fault in a way, you know. Because I, I have a friend who had a, or a, not a friend, like a friend of the family and her father committed suicide when she was like five, uh, six years old. So she can't, she says she can't remember much, but she knows he committed suicide. So that affects, uh, uh, if he had died in an accident, I think she would felt differently because it's a different action, you know. Absolutely. Um, that's another reason, you know, the whole time I've wanted to take Ro with me through this in one way or another, because she does need to know who her father was as much as she can and how he died. He helped helping, he died to helping someone. And, you know, I, I was afraid for a long time. I'm like, oh my gosh, she's growing up without her father around. And I didn't get to be with my dad, you know, growing up a lot. And that was the one thing I wanted to skirt <laughs> as an adult. I didn't want to have a child that didn't have its parents, blah, blah, blah. And I was failing that way. And I realized, you know, she does have him. She has this legacy of this tremendous person who is a part of her. So, yeah, I mean, the MDMA has helped me with that also. It's helped me, I, I think, look at things in the healthiest way possible. It's not always pain-free. But you you can't shy away from who you are. And if I were to never mention David again to her, you know, because I'm afraid I would upset her or something, I don't think I'd be doing her a service. So it's it's really helped me stay open with her also. Has it been hard for your uh, new David? Uh, I mean, like if a couple 
is together for a long time and one of them or they break up or have a divorce it's easy for the new partner because you don't like that person anymore but in this case it's not like that you know yeah it's you know new david as we'll call him he is a tremendous person also i thought for a long time i thought well i'm not gonna date i'm not gonna find someone else because david's dead he was the best one duh but then i started thinking about it i'm like oh my gosh wait there's somebody out there that could be as good as david because we're all really wonderful if we can just figure out how to you know be that good us and new david um his name is uh, let's call him david ross he is able to rise to this occasion i fully believe he bit off more than he could too, you know, he didn't know what he was getting into, but he has stuck with it and it's been hard and painful and it's still painful. We're still learning ways that it's painful to us. But again, I mean, the MDMA has showed us how to have the perspective of the pain is separate from us and we're not purposely doing these things to each other. We're growing through it and with it, you know. It's it's the most, you know, empathetic way to handle it, I think. I can't I can't say enough about it. It really does give you the best perspective on all of the painful things that you're going through in your life if you dig deep and really do the work and have someone there to to assist you. I haven't mentioned that yet. I had really great therapists. It was a dual team um and they they were so wonderful about, you know, uh, pressing when they needed to press and backing off when they needed to back off and helping me find insight within myself. Um, the times I did it recreationally, it was just me on my own as a teenager, you know, I grew leaps and bounds. But when you have someone who knows what they're doing, as far as, you know, uh, trained professionals that are really have their heart in this, uh, it's amazing the kind of breakthroughs you can make. I only took it three times uh, two of the times I had a weaker dose, uh, the third time, I think, oh gosh, I'm so bad at remembering this. Uh, the third time I think I got the higher dose and had a much easier time. But even those lesser dose times, uh, those two therapists helped me through it so much. So I, I hope that's the way it's set up in the future. You know, you can, like I said, you can find all kinds of healing on the dance floor in your living room, wherever. But if you have professionals there to help you, you're going to make that much more progress. So you're talking all the way through it, like a normal session, therapy session, or are you quiet just in your inside? <laughs> That's funny. Um, well, <clears throat> they encouraged me to go inside, you know, with, with the eye shades and the headphones a lot. And um, I'm not usually so verbose, but I really was during the treatment. I could not shut up. I kept taking the headphones off and talking, talking, talking. Um, so usually I think they encourage going inside a lot more, but, um, I think losing David, I didn't have anyone to talk things through as much. So I needed them for that. That's all I can think of. Uh, but they, they did, uh, insist that I go inside sometimes, even if I didn't want to shut up. Because it took a while before you could do that. Did, did you get some sort of like standard therapy help, uh, from the government or something like that? Uh, uh, yeah. I went to, um, I live in a college town and they have like a sliding scale um, uh, for the students who are uh, trying to get their degree in psychology or, or for, to be a psychologist. And so I went there to the same guy for two years and 
you know, he was still learning. He was a tremendous help, tremendous help just having someone there that could uh, listen to me, of course, but uh, they had access to uh, people who were trained professionals that were teaching them and stuff. So I got a lot of help that way too. But you think you probably would still go there? I mean, it's it's a longer healing uh, without the MDMA. Oh my gosh, I would have never, I'm telling you, I would have never gotten to where I am without the swift kick in the ass that a drug like this does for you. I was trying my hardest for two years. I I was on the verge of murder-suicide, it's true. In my head, I would think of what to do, you know, I was there and I didn't because I was in charge of my daughters. The prevailing feeling that kept me going, it does not keep everyone going. I was, I had huge support for my family. I mean, people with lesser circumstances, including myself, probably won't make it in certain cases. And that's just the truth. This drug did something that I would have never come to maybe until on my deathbed when, you know, DMT probably kicks in in high dose or something. I mean, it took a huge chemical shove. If it was willpower, I would have got it done in that two years. Didn't do it. I I got this thing when uh, when my daughter was stillborn was uh, after because I did some truffles. It's like mushrooms uh, a while after that. And uh, I, I, I came to the fact that the grief, in my case anyway, the grief was pure. It was like a representation of my own ego because it was like I wanted that child and I didn't get it. You know, compared to when you're a child is in a shop and they want a toy and they can't get it and they have a tantrum. It's kind of like that because the person who died uh, is fine. Uh, it's just that I can't have that person and um, so, so that kind of realization helped me also nobody belongs to me really you know like uh, if you know what I mean <laughs> I do what a what a hard realization to make at that time in your life but that's when you make those realizations you know it's like the Buddhist thing of like detachment you know I remember Um, being young and hearing about that and like, oh, detachment, that sounds so terrible. <laughs> you love your family. You want to be with your family. You love your loved ones. But ultimately, you're you're right. We don't belong to each other in a possessive way. We belong to each other in a way that's always accessible. You know, like, like I still have my husband, I feel. Um, so knowing that you don't possess them kind of lets you have them in a whole different way. Does that make sense? That's what it's been for me anyway. There's this uh, uh, Sufi poet Rumi. He has this thing where he talks about the highest form of love and he describes it, and I paraphrase, he, he says something like, this love, uh, I mean the perfect one, is doesn't require any connection, which is a complete contradiction. <laughs> Uh, if you, but if you think about it, it's like you don't even need to meet the person. It's like such uh, pure form. Yeah, it's this sounds really woo woo, but I totally believe it. I mean, we are all the same thing. So it's this illusion that we're separate that keeps us longing for each other when we're all right in each other's lap all the time. <laughs> you know, it's, I think society has a tendency also to hide deaths from children and. I was very conscious with my living daughter to 
I mean, she's only three years old. She uh, is fully aware of what death means because uh, uh, I don't think it's good to have it as some sort of secret or mystery or something like that. I agree. You have to, I mean, it sounds so morose and maybe even perverted to some people, but you can't, in my opinion, you can't keep it as a secret. It, you create a boogeyman that way. Like with Roe, we would go walking for huge long walks after David died, just, you know, therapeutically. And anytime we came across a dead animal or something, I would take her to it, you know, and she would see it. It was, you know, the bird was in the air the other day and now it's on the ground and it's going away. And I, for me, nature really helps, you know, to, to cope with things like that. We're, we're all going to be a carcass someday for, you know, lack of a better poetic phrase. But we're also still here like we always have been, in my opinion. And that's helped a lot, too. Yeah, because you you see death all the time. In fact, uh, because I was so conscious of informing her of the existence of death, I noticed how much death you see, like a tree or b bugs. Or uh, In the beginning, it was hard to explain death because uh, she was so young. But then I discovered, a good trick I discovered was that we built a snowman, and when it melted, it died. Uh, and that's how that's when she got it. In a sense. <laughs> that is a great way to introduce that to a child. I think children probably understand on a different level than we do. It's just kind of they're I think they're probably closer to nature. They haven't had their whole crazy lives to make up stories about how they're not part of nature and stuff like that. The snowman's great. We'll see the snowman again. We had the snowman. He's still in our hearts, whatever. <laughs> I don't know if she just misunderstood my question on that, but actually earlier today I was explaining now she's, she was a baby, now she's, because she, she says she's a big girl, now she's a big girl, then she'll be an adult. So I was telling, asking her what, what she was before she was a baby, and she said in her mother's stomach, and I said, uh, well, what were you before that? And then she said, I was old, she said. <laughs> oh my gosh. I, you know, I try to ask my daughter that same question when she was really little, because I, yeah, I think they must know somewhere in there. That's great that she said she was old. I want to hear more about what her old times were like. Hmm. Does she ever talk about being an adult in the past or anything? No, it's just like for the f only six months being like you can have a conversation, so... And not really. And it's also annoying that nature has done it this way. Imagine if they were fully verbal when they came out. That'd be really helpful, actually. <laughs> I wish they were fully verbal. Yeah. So um, um, do you think that uh, MDMA will be available? Because you live in, in America. Some places it is available, isn't it? Um, in America, uh, they're still, <clears throat> excuse me, they're doing the phase three trials right now. You know, MAPS is. And it's a, a much wider spread trial than the one I was in, uh, but it's not legal yet or anything. Uh, ketamine is popping up all over as legal, uh, which is really interesting to me. But um, uh, but no, MDMA, it's not legal yet. But maybe in different parts of the world, maybe I just don't know about it. Do you know where it's legal? Uh, well, I guess Portugal legalized or decriminalized all drugs 
I did live uh, when I was a foreign exchange in Oklahoma for a year. So I would say that if it becomes illegal in, in the United States, that would probably be the last state, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> you never know. Man, things are changing here. We just, in Oklahoma, uh, they let out, like, uh, I think 400, the most, I'm going to get this wrong, the most uh, single release of past offenders or something because... We're going through this criminal uh, reformation. It's really weird. Things are lightening up in Oklahoma a great deal, it feels like. Uh, there are a lot of uh, like a low crime um, or like a low monetary offenses and uh, drug offenses. Like if you you know had marijuana caught with or something like that, they're letting people out all over the place. Um, but I don't know when you were here last, like how long it's been. That sounds good. I was there uh, in like 95. Oh, yeah, it sucked back then. <laughs> yeah, that was a much different Oklahoma, in my opinion. When it comes to uh, MDMA, now you have to get it from the street or somebody you know. But is there a way like to make, can you test it somehow? Do you know it's good or just going to have to go on reference? Well, you know, Dance Safe has their program. You can buy packets and stuff online to test it. Um, but I don't buy illegal drugs, so I don't know. <laughs> um, anytime uh, I come across it, it's always a gift. So I wish I had more information on that, but I don't. Uh, I did have, uh, or I do have DMT, and I've had some occasions where people have asked if they want to buy it, and I said, I don't, I don't sell it. <laughs> it's mine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I have not tried DMT before. I really can't wait. From everything I hear about it, I read, you know, a couple of little experience books online or whatever about it. Um, it sounds tremendous. Um, you said you have tried it before? Uh, yeah, I've tried it uh, maybe uh, quite many times, but only like once a year or something like that, uh, which is quite excessive usage. <laughs> It like goes so fast that uh, it kind of takes a few months to like process what you went through, but it can also be healing. Uh, it can be very healing, uh, or it can be just be uh, crazy. It depends. I can again. I think the setting setting even with the DMT is important. I, I always sit outside in nature, and because it's only fifteen minutes, so it. Does weather anything doesn't really matter. It's so short, so um, it's better to be uh, outside. And uh, um, but it is very different from ayahuasca because it's only the DMT. The ayahuasca has the actual ayahuasca vine also, which adds other things. But uh, um, I've um, been thinking about doing it again for almost a year and a half and I, I can't seem to get around to it uh, because it's not like you're I know it's nothing scary or but it is still I mean it's it's almost a bit too much and uh, I don't really have a reason to go there I, I don't want to go there without a reason you know well I'm really intrigued by it but I think what you just said is about what I've heard. It can be healing, it can be this, it can be that, but it can be absolutely crazy and unlike anything else. And I think uh, I would like to at least see what that looks like. I mean, there's got to be all kinds of knowledge in there, it feels like to me, but I, I haven't done it, of course. I, I am really interested in uh, experiences that people uh, 
have that are so similar or, you know, you experience different entities and they all seem to have these uh, points of view. And, you know, that's that's never happened to me. Like, um, I, I don't know, like hearing Terrence McKenna talk about it and stuff. It's the same as hearing Joe Blow talk about it. Like you go there and there are all these worlds of gods or something. I mean, is that what, what was it like that for you? Oh yeah, it's like it's the complete opposite of LSD, where it's like you go come into this congress of beings. I don't know. It's like loads of things there. I mean, it's uh, uh, it's hard to explain, but it's just full of activity and often this thing where they like you feel like they're like welcoming you or come on in, you know, like that kind of thing. Uh, but it's also very intense and it can be quite overwhelming like you know like when you look up at a very tall building and you almost feel like you're gonna fall backwards like that kind of thing but way more extreme but uh, it's hard to explain <laughs> but I felt um, that uh, it because uh, I, I, I'm so interested in shamanism and I'm studying it and reading it and spending time with shamans I mean really indigenous ones and uh, for a while I was contemplating going down that route and I was thinking about it as my intention for a DMT trip I did and when I came out of when I f- came out of that DMT DMT trip uh, when I was coming down from it I just kept repeating to myself that uh oh it's too th- it's too hard I cannot do this <laughs> I can because like I basically they said oh you want to be this well and it's hard to explain. It's just it was just way too intense. Intense. I'm not ready for it in this life. <laughs> I th- I think you explained it pretty well. I mean, um, to the idea of being a shaman that sounds really what a better you know job to have. Um, but it does sound like the most important, biggest, craziest job there would be. You'd have to clear all of your life and just to be a shaman. It seems like it seems like it'd be a lot. Yeah, yeah, you, it would be impossible. You, that's that's why I, I don't like the white Westerners who are shamans because they, that's impossible. You can't, how can you can't be a shaman on the side? You know, like you can't. <laughs> you have to like you have to live in nature fully. You, you, I mean, um, uh, and you also have to train for years and years. I mean. But uh, so that was good. Also with the DMT, it's like showing you saved me a lot of time. (laughs) Yeah, it sounds like there's a lot of knowledge to be brought back. You know, every time somebody goes, they come back with like, oh, they told me this. Like it was, uh, you know, a really um, official thing that they should have known or something. I think that's really incredible. So I think, yeah, I think the intention with if you do it is very important. I think the longer you have the intention, like maybe many days before you're thinking about whatever your intention is you really like program your mind to for for this i think then it works better because i did listen to you know the hari krishna chant i was listening to that on repeat for a very long time for days i don't know it just got into it for some reason and uh, then i did the dmt and i i had a i was transported into inside myself and I was shown the uh, the amount of love inside me that I didn't know, like the, um, how much it was. And uh, that was quite a, 
powerful experience where you, you just break down crying you can't even believe it it's like well, way more than i imagined you know <laughs> like and i think that's has so, something to do with the fact that i was listening to that Hare krishna song over and over you know yeah yeah i try to prepare anytime i do any kind of thing like that also it doesn't always seem to impact it uh, really obviously like that but but i think that's important to go into it like that um the mdma whenever uh, during therapy, one of the more moving and uh, stunning things that happened visually, I um, I went in and I immediately tried to start conversing with David, um, you know, my husband who passed, and it was like he was there, and we were just chit-chatting like we always would, which was very comforting, you know, not talking about a lot of things of import we got around to how Romy was doing you know stuff like that um I looked up it, it began by um I looked up and there were like little pinpoints of light and then these spires started to grow up into the pinpoints of light which became stars uh the spires just grew taller and taller kind of unrolling themselves and building themselves as they grew and then the stars kind of began connecting each other like whenever someone draws uh, the horoscope figures in the stars, you know, to show where Taurus is or something. Um, but they were moving from one star to another all around. And then it began to form and it was David and he had these wings and we were just chit chatting, chit chatting. It was so comfortable. It felt kind of tentative. Like I better not push anything too hard. It might go away. And then I asked him, I'm like, uh, how how big are you? Because I was trying to find the scale and I could not find a scale. And he throws his arms, which are his wings, up over his head and begins to grow at a massive rate, uh, like uh, exponential rate. Like I can't even understand how fast and how tall. And he just goes and goes and goes. And it's like I'm going through the universe or something. And I'm trying to grasp the scale until I say, oh, gosh, enough, because it was like it filled me up so much. I couldn't I couldn't understand, you know, the word grok. It's like understand completely. I couldn't grok how big he was. It was outside of human understanding. And that was really important in letting me know how OK he was. He was in a situation that I could not understand. And I am here with this human body with all these limitations, you know, and death was shown to me as this complete, um, complete uh, freedom from any limitation, which is what we all, you know, probably think at different times. But I felt it. It's like I know it now. I'm not at all worried to die. I don't want to die. I'm here for plenty of reasons and I'm enjoying it most of the time. And there's stuff to do and I get to be here for this time, but dying, it's okay that we die. I've uh, had a very strong insight in one ayahuasca ceremony many years ago and I, it made me get into near death experience books. I've read many of them and uh, they kind of verify what I heard in that. And it's this thing where you, uh, if it's true that you do, do reincarnate uh, that, uh, you choose so in in that in that concept if that's true 
that means that you chose this to happen to you before you were born because for some reason you knew on your higher in your higher uh, version you knew this was good for you but when you're in it it's it doesn't feel like that but when you're once you die and you like come back to your real self whatever you uh, it was good if you know what i mean like uh, i know i do i feel that completely i don't know if i literally believe in reincarnation like it's thought of but you know on david and i's wedding night when we bonded over mdma we had a shared experience we both saw ourselves in uh, this always sounds so fruity to talk like this i'm sorry it sounds so woo woo but this was what happened um we both saw ourselves way far out in space like in the blackness and we were just you know kind of like light that were talking to each other two chunks of light talking to each other and we decided um i'll meet you down there i will find you and we'll hook back up let's do this and it was like we had seen when we first met we must have first met before we were born we made this decision to go down to this scary place <laughs> and live these lives and find each other save each other to a certain extent and then ruin each other to a certain extent and then come back from that and gain all of this knowledge and pass it on to my daughters what it feels like you know we pass it on to mankind i'm sure we everything we all learn here but that's that's what it felt like years before he died we had this happen to us and it i thought about that after he died i'm like i i did it to myself damn it you know it was another thing that made it so hard but it it's also very comforting at the same time yeah some people get upset when i say this but i in my vision i saw this child starving to death in in like africa somewhere i don't know where and um, i realized that that life uh, probably learned more about love and compassion once it dies than uh, somebody who just lives a very comfortable life Uh, not thinking about much or don't have you know normal drama but nothing that rough you know uh, and but then people think that um, uh, it makes you think that it's good that it starts to death is that's not what it means it just means that it's only for that person experiencing it you know like uh, you know i think people um uh, I, i don't subscribe to this whole good and bad <laughs> anymore you know it's not good that a baby in africa dies whenever it's you know one because of its starvation that's terrible but it's not bad in the sense that we think of it either you know it's terrible there's there's not there's not like crime and punishment there's a, i think a lot less judgment in the universe than we're being told you know that baby did nothing to die of course neither did david neither did some wealthy person who died today we're we're not it's not crime and punishment it's just love and chaos there's times where we all come together and we're harmonious and there's times where we fall apart and it's chaotic and more challenging we gain something from both of those states and every state in between before i had my experience where with my daughter dying uh, i didn't have an issue seeing 
loved ones die in in movies and stuff like that. But afterwards, I I re- can really relate with the characters, even if it's a really bad film. I can still think it's like, oh, that must be horrible for that person to lose that person. Do you, did you get that also? Yeah, you know, I've always loved uh, crying at like stupid tearjerker movies anyway. But I know what you mean by even a bad film can just level me if there's something alluding to what you've gone through. Yeah, I do understand what you're saying. Even like a Marvel movie where it's not supposed to be that kind of movie even, you know, because I, I don't know if you've seen Endgame. I don't like those movies anyway. But I haven't seen Endgame, no, but I do know what you mean. Uh, like a blockbuster that is not trying to really level you. Uh, that happened with me. I went and saw... Uh, Pacific Rim <laughs> and I was I can't even remember why it was so devastating but I'm like oh my god it's just like my situation you know it's like when you break up with someone all the songs are love songs talking about your destroyed relationship I think it's like that after you lose someone all of art is there to show you how much you're still in pain so even if it's like a blockbuster movie or something I think that's beautiful though it's like you get to have insight everywhere you look, even in dorky places. I remember like a while after uh, I was, uh, my daughter died, I, I thought, oh, I'm going to, now I just want to watch a film where I don't have to think about this because every time I saw a film, somebody had to die. They don't have any other ideas for a plot, you know? So I thought, I saw this, they made a film about, uh, um, Oh, what's the band's name now? Uh, it's not Skid Row. Mötley Crew. Mötley Crew. They made a Mötley Crew film, and I thought, oh, this is just going to be sex, drugs, and rock and roll. But then, in the middle of it, the singer or drummer or something, his daughter dies. It's like exactly the same. I was like, this is. I thought it was just going to be a lot of sex and partying, you know? <laughs> it's inescapable. It's everywhere. <laughs> yeah. So, have you had? Did you find it difficult for other people? Uh, to uh, like um, for you, the people around you to uh, understand because I know we like put up uh, our baby on the wall and stuff like that and some people were like freaked out about it or they don't some even my wife some of her friends she threw away because every time she said something they said oh I don't want to hear about that that's too horrible to listen to you know oh man I I feel for you I do Yeah. Um, I think every single one of my relationships changed, um, in surprising ways, you know, because I think we change when things happen on that level to us, you can't help but metamorphosize, you know, into something else. And I think other people don't know how to relate to you after that. But also, like you said, with your wife's friends, some of them just can't deal. I I don't want to talk about that or I can't do this or whatever. It's all consuming. It's like a total institution or whatever, you know, that's all you're doing for a while is grieving and working through losing somebody like that. So, of course, it's off-putting to people. If you don't have to go through something like that, you wouldn't go through it. Even your closest friends and family, some people just can't do it because they haven't picked up those skills. I was pretty mad about it at first. Um, but another thing MDMA has shown me is to let myself and everybody off the hook. So I'm slowly for some people just trying to really understand what makes them unable to help me. Like I need them to help me, you know, 
but yeah, it's painful. It's hard. I kind of got like healing from the uncomfortableness of other people in a sense, because I had a, I had to take a flight not long, like a month after I had to some work thing. I had to take a flight and I was sitting next to somebody and they went like, you know, like you chit chat. They went like, oh, so do you have any children? I said, yeah, she died recently. (laughs) And then the whole flight was uncomfortable for that person, but I kind of enjoyed it somehow. I don't know. It's like, I know what you mean. Yeah. It's liberating to get it off your chest also. And he, no, what happened also was that he, uh, in this particular case, he was talking about his company and his, he felt when he managed to buy his first Rolex, he felt really like that was one of his dreams. And I was like, oh, th- that's when I started talking about the daughter that died because I thought like you're trying to give him some other perspectives, you know. <laughs> you know what? It's um, coming across somebody like that. Like my first reaction was, ugh, you know, <laughs> but the truth is, I think there are a lot of people out there that might be talking to you about their Rolex and they may have lost their husband or their daughter a couple of years ago. They're just going through such a different way to deal with it. You know, um, compassion is really handy eventually, <laughs> but yeah. Um, cause you don't know how much to say when it's something so terrible, like losing your daughter, there's no way you can put that to someone without it being devastating. Cause it is devastating all the way through. And then they're left to deal with that fact with you. But too fucking bad, you know? I mean, there's a lot of painful things everywhere you look. It's not like you want to be rude. They asked, how you're doing? Do you have any children? That's the answer. So the more we have to interact with each other and be uncomfortable, it's only going to make us closer or whatever, understand each other more. But yeah, I wrote a lot of conversations. <laughs> I have ruined a lot of conversations with basically total strangers that would just ask how I'm doing. Yeah, I used to do that all the time. I don't know in in what happened to you, what people who have similar situations, if they keep it secret or not. But what we discovered was that many people we didn't know had lost a child said they did, but they just like kept it secret somehow. Oh, wow. Gosh, I can't imagine that. Jeez. People that you knew, like, were close to? Uh, well, I don't, I don't know that many people. Actually, it's my wife, and she knows a lot of people. But she had, like, friends that she went to school with and friends she had contact over social media and that that came came forward because she was quite open about it. Yeah. Right. I think isolation is one of the uh, main problems when you're going through grief and PTSD. You feel like... No one knows what I'm going through, which is true, but there are people out there that have um, experience with something maybe similar, but especially in America, we're taught to, like you were talking about, like not mention it on the airplane if somebody asks or something. It's only to our downfall that we keep that stuff to ourselves. Like I remember seeing um, it was someone in the Middle East, it was um, a handful of women that were mourning um, a loved one that was like a son or a husband or something that was killed violently and they're in public and they're just moaning and wailing and crying and moving up and down and drawing as much attention as you can imagine when someone's doing that. And I just remember thinking, God, I just want to do that. I want to go in the street and I just want to 
pull my hair out and scream and scratch my face till it bleeds and tell everybody how terrible this is. And nobody even wants you to say it. So I think that is one of the things that is making it so much harder than it has to be for people who lose someone. I'm sorry you had to go through that and are going through that too. That's terrible. I'm doing better than uh, my wife did. It took longer for her. Now she's almost uh, at the point of uh, at peace or whatever you would call it. But uh, uh, it did help with um, ayahuasca. I was trying to make her, because she did it before, I was trying to make her do a ceremony. uh, But it took like almost three years before she did it. And when she finally did it, she said uh, she will always have grief but now she doesn't have that other kind you know like there's two different kinds like one grief you're at peace with and then one that's like you makes you handicapped you know like different kinds yeah you know i i can imagine like i i likened it to when you're on a road trip and you have to drive into the sun that's what it's like it's like you're driving and you're blinded by this grief and then after you're able to work through it a little and a lot over time and with help, you can kind of make a turn and you can turn your head anytime you want. And the grief, that ball of fire is still there. It's always warming you and it's always, you know, putting light everywhere, but you don't have to be blinded by it. You can turn away from it enough to live your life. I'm glad your wife has come to a point where that's her. Her main objection of doing ayahuasca was she didn't want to face the pain. And I said, well, that's what you need to do. But I guess it's harder said than done because that's what you usually do when you do those. Can- Is it the same with MDMA? You kind of have to face it. Well, it's, um, yeah, but it's not hard. <laughs> with MDMA, it's, it's not a big deal because it's like a, you're detached, I guess, from it. It's not terrifying. It's, uh, it's more comforting. It's like... um. Yeah, it's like it's like seeing a fire instead of feeling a fire, if that makes sense. Detached might not be the right word for it. That's what is coming to mind. It's almost like you care for everything and are so uh, compassionate in every direction that even the worst things in your life, you can look on with enough love for it not to scare you. Does that make sense? Oh, it's hard to explain. <laughs> And you also get, I get these kind of things where it's uh, like, don't, don't worry about it. This happens like this is, this goes on for eternity. It's like this, nothing dies really. It's, and it's just uh, your uh, human form right now. Every, but on the big, grander scheme of things, it's just, it's just one of many, of millions of bad experiences but uh, you know it's hard to explain (laughs) no yeah that's the kind of perspective it takes and that's what yeah that's what psychedelics in general have told me too that everything you take so seriously even the worst of things it, it doesn't have to be that painful it's it's not as big a deal as you think it is that kind of thing which is a terrible thing to say but it's true it happens all the time and you can do it that's the main message I got also. For me, it was also, I remember I was listening. It was actually Terrence McKenna. I was listening to him one time. It wasn't long before my tragedy happened, but he, he said that nobody goes through life without tragedy. And I remember hearing that and I was thinking like, because I was looking back at my own life, I had some bad things happen, but 
I wouldn't call any of it tragedy. I thought, oh, I've been pretty lucky. <laughs> and then, like, it happened. So, um, and I'm, I'm not sure I would change it because then I wouldn't have the daughter I have now. And, I mean, it's hard to, you can't really, it's hard to say. But uh, uh, I, 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 I always try to live my life that it, everything happens for a purpose person so more like my experience was more an in initiation yeah yeah it is like an like an initiation it's like a yeah a terrible baptism or something yeah it's you get just like when you take psychedelics you get all this perspective when you go through a profound grief like that I think it it also strips away all the things that make this world uh so limited, you know, like a lot of the limitations are taken away whenever you're grieving because things look so different. You can kind of see them for what they really are, even though they're so terrible. I mean, like I think about security, people think they're safe a lot of times, you know, I convince myself when I'm laying in my bed at night that I'm safe. And um, it's kind of an illusion that you tell yourself, you know, we're hurtling through space, you know, anything could happen on that front. There, there could be any, anybody who wants to do me harm could maybe do it if they really wanted to, but you have to suspend that belief so that you can live this human life. And it's just, it's too unbearable to deal with the fact that we could die today. It's too unbearable. And so we, we cover that up with the notion of, nope, I'm striving, I'm doing this, I'm waking up every day, everything's fine, as long as I brush my teeth and make sure my daughter eats healthy food, we'll be fine, and it's just not true. So when you finally have to look at that in the face because someone did die, you have to decide, you're like, am I gonna be able to pretend again that life is not so scary? And for me, it was getting rid of that duality and being able to know it and carry on did you meet other people who had like similar situation? Yeah. Um, the more similar the situation, the more I understood that everyone's experience really is uh, individual. Like I met a woman, a friend of mine had a friend who she was 23 and she had an infant and I think two other daughters and her husband died. And, you know, she told me about her experience and she seemed to be doing so much better and she's married again. But I remember thinking, I have nothing in common even with this woman. I was 36 when David died, and I felt young. You know, I'm like, well, this girl's so much younger. And, of course, she had the ability to carry on with her life. You know, it's not true. It's just things you tell yourself. They can do it because of this, and my my place is different. We all have untold horrors that we never share with anyone else when it comes to stuff like this. And we have to personally work through them to get past it. So the more people I met, I mean, the more I felt isolated, which seems counterintuitive. But that's how it felt anyway. Yeah. I, yeah, I met a few, but I always felt when they told their stories that they felt more, they felt worse than mine. <laughs> like they like it felt like oh then mine felt easier than what they because I remember one in particular she had two she had twins and there was some medical issue where only one would survive and she she had to choose like I thought that was like that sounded much worse 
and so in in that way it helped me but uh, that helped you seeing somebody else's situation as worse no I'm, I'm, i was just like oh i'm happy i didn't have to make that choice at least you know like i felt spared <laughs> that's you know i feel like um that that was a really insidious thing with people that were grieving or something bad happened to them in general it's like there was always a comparison and like you couldn't bring yourself unless yours was the worst i think that's such a atrocious and commonality it's it's terrible to me um we all have our deepest pain whatever it is and just because yours is in you know a different way doesn't mean it isn't your deepest pain i think it's really really unfortunate that everybody tries to compare because i know what you mean that twin sounds worse than one but that's not true for you you lost your daughter so I didn't say anything to her. I just I was thinking because mine happened. I, I didn't. It just happened, and, and it was dead before I could even make a choice. You know, so that's heartbreaking in a different way, though. I mean, to, <laughs> I know my uh, one of my, my uh, aunts said, "Well, you're young. You'll find another husband." Um, you know, I lost my husband after 50 years, so that was even harder than what you're going through. That kind of thing. And all I could think of was I was only with David for 12 years. I still have like 50 years coming to me. So it depends on how you look at it. Um, mm. Yeah, I know uh, there's a in those circles uh, where you lost your child, because uh, they um, when you meet those kind of parents, it's either they die in the stomach or they die up till like one year, because up till a year you're still considered an infant, you know, you, cause it's what it's common. You die in the crib for some reason. So you, they lump those people together and there was always this thing where, well, at least you had to, could meet yours or, well, I didn't, I didn't meet mine. It's should, is that, that's, I wish I could have met. It was always like a, a battle between which was, which version was preferred, you know? Yeah, that's impossible. <laughs> impossible it's the worst thing that would happen to you and that is all that matters i think you know and i would say it was probably a hundred times more worse for my wife in that sense because i didn't really have as big a connection as she did and i noticed i didn't realize this until i had the living daughter because it took it wasn't until she was one years old when she was sitting on my stomach in the middle of the night one time and she saw me for some reason, like we connected. And because uh, uh, up till that point, they just, you know, breastfeeding and then, you know, it's the mother's connection. And in the stomach, I can't, I can feel it, but I, you know, it's, I imagine it's different. So, so when, when, when I had my connection with my daughter when she was one years old, I realized the connection my wife had with the one who died in her stomach. So I, it almost took me two years to realize uh, her grief was... Different. I think it's different because, I mean, what is... Forgive me. I don't mean to offend you or anything. You tell me if I do. But what um, there is no worse... Um, I haven't lost a child, so what the fuck do I know? But to me, whenever you're comparing one pain to another, it's like when you say what's worse, you can't imagine what someone has gone through. 
I have no idea what you've been through. I have no idea what your wife has gone through. No one knows what I've been through. It's just what it means to you personally. Like, I mean, is it worse that your wife had this connection and lost your daughter? Or is it worse that you didn't get to make the connection and you lost your daughter? They're both complete tragedies. Yeah, that's true. I guess it's just ways you say to yourself to rationalize things. Uh, what I noticed is that I now uh, am worried that I'm going to be overprotective. So I'm really trying not to do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, you know, um, I it, I did not lose my child. I lost my husband and I find myself doing the same thing. Like I'm a, I'm a spaz about crossing the street. I'm, I get so bent out of shape about it. I'm like, you have to stop. You have to look this way. I mean, all parents do, but I feel like it's my life's duty to make sure she, you know, stays out of traffic. And that's just a hang up. It's a fear more than a normal or any other parent might have just because of what I saw. But you can't help but feel like, you know, it's an animal reaction to something that happens like that, I guess. So how does it, how long was it when it happened? Was it a long time ago or? Um, it's eight years uh, this next summer, 2012. So how do you see the future? Do you, do you still need to work with the MDMA on, or do you feel that you can do the rest on your own? Uh, I think every five years I need an MDMA up, you know, re-up. I think as on a whole, I think society probably could use that. But for what I'm going through, um, it's the gift that does not stop giving grief. You know, it just it's like a box and you think you're going to open the box and there's the grief. It's a box with a box with a box with a box and they just continue to keep growing. It's endless. But, you know, it's not all bad, but there are always new facets coming up and MDMA really helps with it. I think we actually touched on all the, there's, I can't remember the list, but there's like certain amount of emotions you go through in grief, like uh, anger and r trying to rationalize things like yours is worse than mine and fear and all. I can't remember them all, but uh, yeah, bargaining uh, <laughs> is one, but it's hard to bargain with a death, I guess, but uh, uh, but most of them I could relate to and uh, the anger, as you said, the anger was more closer to the actual event. In the moment, it was more anger. Um, uh, like you said, you also wanted to kill everybody. I also had that feeling like uh, that uh, I knew there were thousands of mothers who gave birth to children they didn't even want you know so i thought well then i can just murder them yeah you know i had that feeling you know if they don't want them you know i'll help them you know like that kind of thing because I, I was offended by them not wanting theirs when i wanted mine you know? yeah that anger um uh you know anger comes up sometimes as a motivator like you could maybe save something i think that's a lot of where mine came from also like if i get part of me secretly probably thought if I got mad enough, I could probably undo this whole bullshit. <laughs> I could probably somehow keep him from having died. Um, wasn't true. And there was a lot of, um, you know, straight up anger, like who's here to help me raise my baby? Damn it. Um, 
but it goes so much deeper than that. And you want to take it out on other people like social media can't, I still have trouble doing it so badly because, you know, I used to be on Facebook and stuff all the time back in the day. Soon as he died, everyone on Facebook was either so in love with their significant other and throwing it in everyone's face, or they were just griping about them and not appreciating them. Just everybody was a terrible spouse, which is not true, but that's what it felt like, you know? So to this day, I can't be on social media and really be interactive anymore. I used to have conversations and stuff. I don't do it. It's, it's weird. It's like it, it's one of the anger parts that I have yet to let go. I think it's because there are so many faceless, nameless people out there. You know, I can just hate them altogether, which is terrible. Um, but I understand what you're talking about. Yeah, the anger. <laughs> I also think my situation was a bit different because the reason I could deal with my grief quicker than my wife was because uh, that anger, that there was only one day because what happened was it took a week for the child to come out. And there's like risk of the mother dying or uh, not being able to have a child again. Uh, there's all this stuff. In. So as soon as the first 24-hour trauma grief came, I kind of went into another mode of like just making sure my wife could have a child again and not die, you know. So w- I, I was more focused on that. And then uh, when it all went well w- on, in that area... I felt like a success, you know, it felt like, oh, you know, like, so it kind of flipped for me in my, where in her situation, she didn't care about if she lived or could not have, you know, like, so it was way, it's a different experience for her. Uh, so I, in that way, it kind of helped me that uh, I could focus on that. That's what I think retrospectively. Yeah. There was something that you could take action on in a way. Yeah. God, I can't imagine what you went through, both of you. And I I do I also understand rape now actually because as a man you understand that that's not nice for a woman to experience but it's as always I if you don't if you can't have a direct experience it's hard to understand but that week at the hospital I don't know I lost count of how many men and women were poking their fingers and she she almost got this uh, PTSD rape PTSD it wasn't rape but that is the same feeling she felt what do you call it uh, uh, what do you call it when you feel violated violated she felt violated and I could see it and and I was I even went and said can you please limit the amount of different people that are poking their fingers you know and they said yeah but it's it was like a week uh, a holiday week you know like so they had way more staff uh, rotation or whatever um but uh yeah so but uh, so i could see that so i uh, uh, because that can be hard to understand if you're a guy you know yeah and yeah your poor wife she's gone through such a horrible ordeal and then to have it extended basically for a week because of that and then have all these people approaching her physically during that time that is a violation yeah Ugh. Whenever, um, when David died, uh, the cops showed up and I had, you know, walked to the car with my daughter back to the car after a while. And the cops came over and wanted me to fill out a form just on the accident, what happened, 
this is just, you know, minutes after I left David's body. And I remember just boiling with rage um, because I did. I felt violated. I'm like, how dare you talk to me about this? I'm, I'm in the depths of it right now. And they want me to write a paragraph in English with punctuation and stuff. I was just so, you know, it's just blind anger. But any insult, even them trying to help me by having write write what happened down with the accident, it was just too much. And I'm like, where's your fucking humanity? You know, I can only imagine your wife must have felt that. Yeah, I can imagine. Did you get anger at the person who who hit him? Oh man, yeah. Um, at first, you know, as far as anger, I was laying, I was sitting there with him, you know, as he was, he had died at this point, and I looked up and I saw the woman who had accidentally killed him. She was standing by her car about 20 feet away, and she was just sobbing and sobbing. And because I was in shock, I was just yelling to her. You know, I, I had to nurse my daughter because she was so upset. So we were just a sight, you know. But I was sobbing and and telling her, you know, it's okay. Don't feel bad, you know, saying stuff like that because I was out of my mind. Later, I, I got more upset, of course. Even though it was an accident, I had to deal with how she ended him, in my opinion. But or, but I found out after all, all the accident report and stuff, um, the people we pulled over uh, to help, they pulled us over because they were arguing. I thought we were pulling over because uh, something about their situation looked like the girl was in labor. And I asked David to pull over to help. There was a girl doubled over in the side of the car. And that's what made me think that uh, that was what was going on. And since I had just given birth naturally a year or so ago, I was like, oh, I can help this woman. So that was my own guilt because <laughs> I made I felt like I made David pull over. And then he went down there and they're just having some bullshit fight like a spat, you know. <sighs> I, I I can't say for sure, but I always think like your death is set in stone. I don't think you can avoid it. Uh, but um, who knows? But uh, yeah, so, but I imagine all those people, those arguing and the person who hit and uh, they probably all had have some sort of trauma from that day. Of course, yeah. Yeah, it's almost like we're a weird circle of people that are bound to each other because of it or something. The man who died, other than my husband, I ugh, I saw him die. Um, I must have seen David, but uh, the therapist said it was so outside of the norm that my brain couldn't process what I was seeing. Because I saw him right before and I saw him right after. And of course, I wasn't taking my eyes off him the whole time it happened, but I could not process it. So it's not in my memory. But Mr. Householder was the other man. And he was like a really tall man and he was thrown through the sky. And uh, and, and he was he one of the arguing couple or? Nope. He also pulled over to help just as David and I did at the same time. David and he and David were um, David was just leaving the car. David was the one that got to the car first. And David had um, asked them if they needed help, you know, and they said, yeah, we're having a fight. Can you call 911? He's like, I'm going to call 911, but you shouldn't be pulling over the side of the road, flagging people down because you're having a spat. Pull over at a gas station, you know. And Mr. Householder, the other man who died, his wife was in earshot and she heard David 
scolding the couple as he was walking off, making the phone call to 911. And that's when he was struck. And that's when Mr. Householder was struck also. Have you met any of these people afterwards? Um, I had to, um, I had to be with them whenever uh, the the court appearance was for the woman who uh, killed him. We were all there. So yeah, I saw them. I was thinking maybe the wife of the other person, if you connected with her or... Right. Yeah, right. On the scene, whenever it had happened, right when I got up from David, finally, to walk back to my car, she grabbed the the wife, Mr. Householder's wife. Gosh, I, I'm getting this confused. Maybe it was right when it happened. She came up to me and grabbed me and said, you know, you're going to be really mad at him someday and it's okay. Just work through it. I've lost people before. It'll be all right. And then she left me and she turned around and she went, oh, like that. And she looked down and her husband had died and she didn't know it. Oh, I totally forgot about that till I just mentioned it to you. But um, so, yeah, I, I mean, I'm going to know that woman for the rest of my life. I never have talked to her again since the court hearing, you know, but it's such a such a binding moment. I can imagine. Um, but I'm happy that uh, the MDMA has helped uh, you move forward. Oh, yeah. I wish everybody on that scene could have access to it. It's a, a it's a crime that not everybody can right now, straight up. It's terrible. So anything else you want to say about it uh, that we haven't covered? Um, I, I'm sure I've said everything. Um, I just want to reiterate, if you are inclined and you do get the opportunity to do it in a, you know, um, appropriate atmosphere. I, I highly recommend it. It's, I think it's worth a shot personally. If you do it with a friend who's a sitter, uh, um, is that uh, also possible or do they, if they don't have any, um, skills as a therapist, you know? Um, I'm not going to, uh, talk down about anybody who's doing it if they can't find the right kind of help. You know what I mean? Um, all I can say is if you do get the opportunity to do it with a therapist that knows what they're doing, that's the best way to do it. Um, I'm first and foremost, I just want people to be responsible because it is, uh, kind of hard to resist just doing it yourself by yourself. But I have no idea what kind of state people are in mentally. I don't know what kind of drugs they're getting a hold of. You know what I mean? I don't want to be irresponsible. If they find that they're in a good situation, you included, and you feel like it's the right thing to do, if you can do it with someone who has uh, training, I highly recommend it. Um, sitters, as sitters go, they really do range all different kinds of people. Um, you know how it is. So if there's someone you trust, you know, I would always do it with my husband or my boyfriend because I trust them. But it's a decision you have to make for yourself. I'm sorry. I just don't want to be irresponsible. Do you understand? <laughs> no, it sounds like good advice. Um, normally, the person I speak to has a website or something, but maybe not in your case. But may maybe you have other websites people you think you could recommend. No, I'm terrible on social media, like I said. <laughs> I'm almost invisible. But thank you for asking. So thanks a lot for taking the time to talk to me about uh, these difficult topics. Thank you for sharing also. And um, I wish you continued progress, you and your wife and your daughter.
in episode 247, uh, I had a guest on talking about uh, psychedelic users coming out of the closet in February of 2020. And the episode was called Coming Out. And I actually got a review on iTunes about this episode. And it reads like this. Coming out? Question mark. Comparing psychedelic use to coming out as gay or being a different race is cringe. I get there's a stigma and misinformation around psychedelics. But there aren't hate crimes and institutional violence against psychedelic users. LOL. I do enjoy this podcast though. Moongal64. Well, uh, I beg to differ. It depends on where you live, you know. There are many parts of the world, and I live in such a part of the world, where if I would go to, if I have a boss, and I would say, oh yeah, I'd like to do mushrooms on the weekend, uh, that would not go down well. I could probably end up in prison, lose my job, you know, if, if I talk about psychedelic use to uh, people around me, they look at me as if I was insane. So it uh, actually depends on where you live. I mean, I imagine it's easier to say you do shrooms if you live in California, but uh, try saying it if you live in Iran. Um, you probably end up uh, whipped or something like that. Um, of course, you can't compare homophobia to uh, people using psychedelics and you can't compare what uh, you know the slave trade and slavery to uh, people who use psychedelics but I don't think we uh, made that comparison in that episode we were more using it as an allegory uh, the term coming out because and also you can't come out as a race i mean it's you can't like when you're 40 years old say oh by the way i'm asian you know there isn't any like straight up hate crimes against using psychedelics but it doesn't mean that it doesn't feel like coming out when you come out as openly as a user of psychedelics so uh, not everything is black and white, but uh, the whole point of that episode was that we should all who use it, we should all come out, which would make it acceptable. And the reason we, we made the gay or gay pride reference is because the reason being gay is more acceptable today than it was 20 years ago is because so many came out and that's the reason we called it coming out okay that's all i have to say about that i want to close this episode with the song and i played it a few years ago actually already but i want to play it again it's called maybe you'll be the first to die by dan warren from the album departures july 31st and not only do i think it's a fitting song because of the lyrics it's also fitting because Dan Warren is also from Oklahoma. So uh, let's finish with that song. And I'll see you all in a week. Freedom is in the mind. Maybe you'll be the first to die. I'll probably live alone.
hotel. 